This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hi, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Max. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I did a bunch of traveling, and now I'm back home, so I'm, I'm kind of relaxing and trying to get that whole work thing done. <laughs> so oh, catching that's, up. That's fun. That's good. <laughs> uh, how about you? I'm good. I just got off of uh, New York Toy Fair, so I got to see all okay. the latest and greatest new toys that are coming out. Okay. And are, are there any? Is there a lot of 3D printing stuff there, or nothing at all? Uh, not really. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's used a lot for prototyping and stuff like that because we did have some fun discussions. And then several people came up to me and actually said, oh, my God, I use your device to fix my 3D prints all the time. And I was like, yep, that's what it's for. So awesome, that, was, awesome. that was fun. Good. It's good when people are using it for its original intended purpose. I'm always happy when people are using 3D pens for repairing 3D prints. Okay, <laughs> so, I've never done that. Actually, uh, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, you should try. All right. Who do we have on the 3D pod today? Today we've got uh, Philip Lund Nielsen, and Philip is um, well, one of the co-founders of something called I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's 3D Printuset, which is kind of a demo lab kind of for for 3D printing construction technology in Denmark. And later on, they developed kind of based on that a technology, kind of a gantry based uh, construction 3D printer, and that became Cobalt. And Cobalt now sells these machines all around the world. And uh, as well as being like co-founder, uh, Philip is uh, the head of uh, uh, Americas for, for Cobalt. Cobalt has dropped in the industry at, at a, a huge time for 3D printing for construction. Uh, it got really big. And the really notable thing they've done is managed to line up a bunch of really notable, really big partners uh, who seem to think their vision on construction 3D printing is very credible, including some of the largest cement companies in the world and uh, GE and stuff like that. So that's, 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 I think it's very fascinating. I like them because in the beginning, everybody else was just being overly optimistic and they were being quite realistic down to earth. So that's why I started to really follow them. And uh, I've really enjoyed interacting uh, with all the people at Cobalt I've met, so I'm really, really excited to, to, to have uh, Philip on the, on the podcast today. Yeah, welcome to the show, uh, Philip. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Before you, essentially, you, were, you're, you, you taught statistics at a business school, and, and you were doing all this other kind of stuff. How did you get in contact with this 3D print to set thing, and what was that actually? Sure. So um, if we rewind to 20... Uh, 13, I had just dropped out of uh, college uh, for health reasons, um, and uh, I stumbled across these engineers um, and, and one of my family members, and we decided to open up a store uh, in, Cop- in, in Copenhagen uh, for reselling small-scale 3D printers for the house. So think uh, print an iPhone cover or print you know nuts and bolts, something like that. Uh, which was very big back then. And uh, if you went on Kickstarter, you would have seen like 100, 150 different new types of small-scale uh, household 3D printers. And uh, we resold those in uh, in Copenhagen. So we we turned an old restaurant into the showroom, uh, which we, we called uh, the House of 3D Printing, or as it, uh, as it was called in Danish, uh, 3D Printhusel. Um, nice. I wasn't, like, See how I almost got that right? <laughs> yeah, I was like six out of ten. Six out of ten. <laughs> out of 10. <laughs> it was it was good enough. It was good enough. Um, but but we uh, so so that went well. Um, but we figured that 
um, the potential could be even larger outside of the household. So uh, the technology was fantastic, but where else could it be applied? Uh, we uh, we got a grant by the by the Danish government uh, to go and research this. And uh, back then there was already a lot of developments uh, within dental 3D printing, uh, within um, uh, defense, within metal additive manufacturing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, very little was going on uh, within construction. And construction is the world's largest industry. Uh, it makes up around 13% of, of uh, global GDP. That's 12 trillion dollars approximately. Um, However, that industry is also one of the least automated in the industry, it trails most other industries when it comes to automation and thus labor productivity. So we thought, hey, okay, this might actually be an interesting uh, industry to, uh, to see if 3D printing makes sense in. So what we did was, and this was around 2015, 16, uh, with that Danish uh, uh, sponsored government grant, uh, we went out to a lot of different fairs, went out to a lot of different manufacturers to see what the state of the art was uh, for this technology uh, in construction. And the conclusion was twofold. Uh, one, that the state of the art really didn't exist. Uh, but then also, two, that there is a potential to create uh, something great, to create the state of the art uh, of additive manufacturing within construction. And that's what we did. So in 2017, we actually did a first prototype uh, 3D printer, large-scale 3D printer with which we 3D printed Europe's first uh, 3D printed home in concrete. And it wasn't that large. It was uh, around um, 600 uh, square feet. Um, but it really demonstrated the technology and what was possible. And it, you know, it took us a long time to do even. It was around two months, which is abysmal even for, for regular construction of such, uh, such a small home. Um, but we, we saw that the technology uh, was there and it could do it. So no, I was in those early. I mean, you know, twenty seventeen. So years ago, in those early days, what were those hurdles that were causing such delays? Was it? I mean, was it just as simple as moving the machine around and trying to reconfigure it, or or was there some major obstacle that you guys were encountering and trying to print yeah. concrete? Yeah, good question. So um, you, you could say it was a funny, it was a funny exercise doing this because initially you, we were thinking, well, it, isn't it just about taking a small-scale household 3D printer and then just extending each dimension by a factor of, you know, 50 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, we're just using concrete instead of plastic. It exactly. should be simple. Yeah, it should be simple. It should be simple. Like everything. Exactly. I'm not an engineer, but we had some uh, smart and still have uh, smart engineers who are, that, that were working on it. But the, the, the biggest hurdle was actually um, the materials. So getting concrete uh, which is a it's a great it has its flaws, but it's a great material for, for 3D printing if you get it right. But to get it in a 3D printable state and and take it from fluid to solid uh, while depositing it from from this uh, large scale gantry style uh, 3D printer, that was difficult. Yeah, because you need something that flows really well and then dries really quickly, right? Exactly, and and right. that's the thing. You can 3D print with a lot of different materials. Be that. Uh, plastics, uh, be that uh, metal, be that concrete, even, I mean, even chocolate, it, it just, it has to be able to go from a fluid state uh, to a solid state quite quickly. Uh, and concrete can do that, but to make it 3D printable, to make sure that it doesn't collapse uh, under its own weight, uh, that was very difficult back in, uh, in 2017. 
So you were, for lack of a better, like you were playing with the formulation of uh, of the concrete, but you weren't create. You didn't end up having to create a totally new concrete at the end of the day, or did you? Well, that that sort of came at a later stage. Um, so once we were joined uh, by by our investor Semex, and Semex is one of the world's largest uh, cement and concrete manufacturers. Actually, some years before they became investors, we started working on how to take a concrete that's mixed using locally sourced materials, uh, so that is cement, sand, aggregates, and, and water. How can we actually take that, mix it locally, and then 3D print it? And, and the magic recipe here uh, are the additives that, that we develop with uh, Semex to, uh, to make that happen. But back in the early days, that was just a lot of, you know, cobalt, uh, all of our engineers just experimenting it, uh, experimenting with it uh, to extrude it and and create this um, first prototype. So you made the mm-hmm. first prototype, and then the world beat a path to your door. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so first what happened? After? Yeah. yeah, what happened after? Um, that was 17. Then we we spent the next uh, two years. Uh, further developing this system. So the first generation system, we actually call that the BOD, B-O-D, for building on demand. Um, so we continued working on, on that system and developed the BOD 2, the second generation printer. So we started uh, commercializing and we, st- we actually sold the first 3D printer um, in 2019, so around four years ago. And back then we thought, okay, this could actually be quite big. Um, and maybe we shouldn't continue using our va- very Danish-sounding name. So instead, we uh, we came up with a new company name because now we thought, hey, now we're actually a company of buildings on demand, or or C O B O D. So that became Cobot, sort of rhymes with uh, robot oh, okay. too. So that's yeah. how we got our name. Um, during the COVID years, it got a bit confusing. We got a lot of requests for a COVID 3D printer. <laughs> uh, but uh, we decided to uh, to stick with the name. And, I mean, and, in a and, couple of years, I don't remember the COVID years. So I think you're okay. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. What I also think is fascinating is between the founding of the first uh, iteration of the company and then later on, you actually went and, and, and did some studying and then you joined McKinsey and stuff like that. Did you Did you – you know, did you not believe in it or did you think that was another valuable opportunity or what happened there? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so first up, I, um, I, I can't take much credit for, for all the things that happened in, in, uh, up until 2021. Uh, um, because as you said, uh, I was out, uh, I, I wanted to finish my, my master's degree. Um, so I went to Texas to, um, uh, to study. I went to Singapore to study and, and then finalized it in Copenhagen. After which I, I joined the uh, the consulting uh, company, um, U.S. consulting company, McKinsey uh, and Company, and were there uh, for a few years. But then I got a call back from from the team uh, early 2021, um, and two and a half years ago, and they said, "Hey, do you want to do you want to come back? Do you want to do 3D printing?" But but now it's on a much much bigger scale. So you know, I went out to um, to, to the manufacturing facilities to a, a, a headquarters in, in Copenhagen. Uh, and it, it took me like uh, five, 10 minutes to make that decision because I thought, okay, this, this is super, super exciting. This is sexy. And there is a potential to really transform uh, the world's largest industry uh, for the better. So that was, uh, that was sort of my journey. And, and let's just say when I went out there, I realized that 
things have been going quite well uh, in my absence. <laughs> well, that was good, but and was that kind of weird? Because first of all, what I'm interested in is that McKinsey, you're doing a lot of you know, spreadsheet driven, PowerPoint driven, kind of high level strategy stuff. And now all of a sudden you're in the nitty gritty of like, you know, we need to call people and we need to make stuff happen. Something broke and a container is missing. Was that a very jarring kind of uh, adjustment for you to go from like kind of like this very high and high level uh, approach to all of a sudden being back in the nitty gritty of everything? For sure. Um, I, I usually, so I have a sort of mentor and, um, he, he said to me that, that in, in his life, he realized there were sort of three different uh, views you got to take on business. There's the 30,000 feet view, there's the uh, 3,000 feet view, and then there's the 30 feet view, right? And uh, McKinsey's very high level strategy and, you know, um, what, what is the big picture? What are you going to do five years down the line, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, PowerPoint, Excel, and, and all that is, is very useful tools, too. Um, and then there's the 3,000 uh, feet view, which is, uh, I would say, more like week to week, um, where, and, and this is sort of where I, I had to join uh, or had to adapt going from, from the very high level strategic view to a 3,000 feet view, which is more um, operations, uh, like day to day, who do we hire, which customers do we try to target, um, how do we handle this specific situation. And then sometimes there's also a lot of the 30 feet view, which is, um, okay, uh, you know, there, there's an issue with, um, with, uh, with this, this nuts and bolts in this uh, printer in California. It's not working right now. How do we make sure to fix it within 24 hours so our customers' op operations doesn't stop overnight? Something like that. So, yes, it's been a major transition going from 30,000 feet to 3,000 or, or even 30 feet for sure. And what surprised you the most? Was you just were you just surprised at how much progress they've made? Were you just like, whoa? Is that what blew you away? Or? What blew me away initially was how, in such a short span, uh, we'd gone from uh, selling three uh, D printers for the household to uh, selling three D printers that can print a household. Uh, it, it, it's on such a different scale. It's so much bigger. Uh, and, and that really impressed me. And, and what has impressed me then in subsequent years is is the degree uh, to which this has picked up. I mean, we, we have sold machines uh, on on six uh, have all six habitable uh, continents and our customer base is very wide. And what our customers are, are doing with this technology, I mean, we, we couldn't have envisioned this uh, four years ago. I mean, they're, they're printing one, two, three story houses. Uh, they're printing schools, wind turbine um, towers. Uh, they're printing data centers, equestrian facilities. There's so much going on, uh, and and it's really just a bliss to to see what our customers uh, are doing with our technology. Okay, that's cool. Because like, everybody always talks about houses, right? And I think so. I'd, I'd like to talk about not houses. Like, what are the some of the applications that you think are, are going to be especially fruitful? Or what kind of like buildings or what kind of structures do you think are really going to be really interesting? And if it's only houses, you can go to only houses. But more interested mm. in not houses. But mm, mm. yeah, good question. I mean, houses is um, definitely the one of the bigger use cases that our technology is is made for and there is a big uh, need for it i mean in the us alone um, i read that there is a deficit of, of 4 million uh, affordable homes so so you need automation to accomplish that especially because there is a major lack of of skilled labor um, however 
I also see, we see in general, a, a as big, if not even bigger potential in non-housing related structures. So one thing that's of, of keen interest to us is more, uh, let's say, infrastructure uh, related uh, or commercial um, use cases. So let's say 3D printing data centers, 3D printing warehouses or logistic hubs, uh, 3D printing these wind turbine towers uh, on land or maybe offshore wind turbine towers. Uh, there, there's a lot of these use cases that um, have been done with conventional methods in uh, con- conventional construction methods for decades. And in reality, they, they really haven't changed much um, and, and costs are still very high. It's still very time consuming to do them. And we think they're ripe for change. And, and that's why we believe 3D printing is, is the technology that can, can solve for it, for sure. About the houses thing, the thing that I don't like about it is that the, the issue seems to be with these people is that we have millions of people that are not earning enough because their incomes have not gone up in, in line with inflation and house prices. So these guys can't get a loan from the bank. They can't get a loan from the from uh, enough to cover a home that can that, that they can pay off the mortgage of. I think that to me in, in a lot of societies is a problem. It's not necessarily you know if we save thirty percent of the cost of the house. In a lot of cases, they still can't afford the house. You know. Yeah, yeah. but that's not really the, the guys who are making <laughs> housing equipment. Yeah, but that, but that means that if we even make it cheaper, then it's like it's not going to actually do anything for the housing market. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, but I think what's more interesting, and you're right to bring it up, Joyce, is that the infrastructure aspects that you, I mean, even just laying concrete down for a drainage ditch, like if you couldn't automate that and bring it down to just one person who kind of has to supervise that after you've impacted and done all what you need to do, like, isn't that a potential huge savings from a construction perspective? And is that possible? I guess, Bill, that's, that's and, and for sure. And, and George, you, let me let me comment on, on uh, what you said first. So, um, yes, I mean, we, we're, we've always been very transparent and very down to earth with regards to the potential. So I was kind of sad to see some years ago stories about how, um, oh, you could 3D print a house uh, for four thousand dollars total cost or you could 3D print a house now in 12 hours. Uh, what about 3D printing a skyscraper? Like we, we we had all these stories coming out. It was just inflating the potential uh, of this technology beyond reality. Um, so I think luckily that sort of came down and now we're on on sort of a, a slope of, of uh, enlightenment, uh, if you will, where we're starting to see these use cases and they're starting to make sense. We're getting better and better numbers. But 3D printing is not going to be the end all be all solution. There is still you know, structural issues uh, in society that that's not going to, well, 3D printing is going to help, but it's not going to solve all of it. I mean, one thing, if we talk about housing is, is scarcity of land, right? That's driving up prices too. Um, and especially here in the U.S. And, and a 3D printer uh, can't, you know, do much in that regard. It can help with the construction costs and times. Um, but if, it's there, if there's not enough uh, permits or land uh, to build, um, that that's going to, you know, take away some of that effect for a, a new uh, homeowner. Right. So it's not going to solve everything, but but we do hope that it's going to help uh, at least to uh, to some extent that it'll it'll pick up uh, and it'll get better and better as the technology progresses uh, for sure. 
Um, so yeah, that was the first, uh, my first comment to, to your uh, remark, Joris, and, and to yours, Max. I sort of forget, uh, forgot what you asked. Can you, can you please repeat it? The, the, the infrastructure aspect, like, is it conceivable to have a system, you know, where you're using this technology to even just do something as basic as like a drainage ditch? I mean, I, yes. I understand you'd still need a work crew to come in to pack down and dig out the ditch and kind of set it up, if you will. Mm -hmm. But can you reduce it down so that only one person or, you know, a very small crew just comes in to lay concrete without having to put forms down and without having to do all of that other traditional work that's currently done where, you know, you're putting a form, you're putting a wire mesh, you're then pouring. You're then, eh, 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 eh. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> And I, I don't know a lot about drainage uh, drainage ditches, but but what we see in general when and we look at a lot of these different uh, applications that we want to attack, right? And what we see in general is that three D printing can, for the most part, um, do it uh, faster and with uh, less materials, meaning reduced cost, and also with fewer people on site, right? So one of our printers, uh, on on average, you, it takes three people to to operate it so let's let's talk drainages i mean it would be a perfect example if you could set up a 3d printer on site and then you would just print um a line after line of these uh, drainage ditches uh, that could then be installed after uh, so you wouldn't have to put up uh, formwork which is which is time consuming and expensive and you could have few people operating it that's just from a you know an efficiency standpoint. But another view you can also have is how can we design these drainage ditches and other structures in a smarter way? Because I guarantee you the only reason why these ditches and, and other structures look the way they do right now, say why a house is a rectangle and not more rounded, is because of that. That's what the existing construction methods allowed for. But our mindset at Cobot is hey. Don't use technology of the future to replicate solutions of the past. In other words, think outside the box, right? So now could we design these ditches in a way that uh, with topology optimization, maybe we could reduce the material usage by 30% or make, maybe we can make the ditches more efficient in, in how they carry water. Uh, so that's really one of the, the most interesting things I see is how can we build smarter with smarter technology? I think that's a very fair point and a very key one is that you're right, that I think we are often couching it back in the old way of doing it, so to speak, and saying, how do we get new technology to just make old stuff instead of saying, how do we get new technology to make new stuff that's better um, and reconceive of how we do construction on that level is a very good point about that because you're right. We just do drainage ditches the way we do it because that's how we've done it for 70, 80 years. Um, in this method. So that's an interesting take on it. And I think it's the right take on it. So, Yeah, I, th I think it's, it's a good point. that This, this is Gottfried Semper, I think. It's, there's a thing he had, this thing called stofwechsel. And stofwechsel is the idea that we used to have houses that were made of carpets, right? The carpets on the walls and stuff to divide rooms. And then we moved to a new technology. And then we put up wallpaper because we're, we feel comfortable with these patterns and the colors of the carpet. We end up doing this all the time. And that's one thing that really, so I love this as well. I love the sentiment as well. But I, I really hate the fact that if you give if you give 3D printing construction to an architect, he's going to come up with some Jetsons building that from a 3D printing perspective doesn't make sense, right? They, they come up with these stuff that looks futuristic, but it doesn't actually like optimize for the technology. 
Yeah, that's uh, that, that that's correct. And, and and that you could say that's one of the now we've talked a lot about the potential of this technology and what it can do. But um, we can also talk about what are the obstacles, what are the challenges that we face as an industry to to ensure that this uh, tech really takes off. Uh, and as you said there, Joris, one, one thing that's of, of um, utmost importance to us is dissemination of, of knowledge. So how do we train, educate the workforce of tomorrow to utilize this technology? So uh, we, we actually do a lot of guest lectures at different uh, universities uh, around the globe. Um, I did one recently at the University of Miami for architecture students. Uh, on how to how they can utilize this technology without necessarily creating something which is the the, the Jetsons, uh, which is not which is not feasible for the 3D printer to build with. Uh, and one other example of something I, I really find fascinating is how AI could be integrated in an architect's work too, right? So you you build you do a design with the help of of AI, uh, and then you let the machine do the hard labor afterwards. That's to me that's exciting. And then you're going to have part of your building is going to have five, 15 fingers. <laughs> <laughs> well, why not? <laughs> if the computer says that's what's the most efficient thing, that's the most efficient thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, and then, okay, so, so one more, I think the education thing is really important. So I, I love that you're focusing on that. And then another thing is, okay, what are some more obstacles then? Because I like one thing that you've kind of solved is you kept the, the, the additives, the percentage of additives relatively low as, as expressed as the total aggregate. So you don't have to import all the concrete all the way to New Zealand, which would be stupid, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're developing now with, I think, Holsim and Semex, right? Uh, mm-hmm. These additives. So that seems to be going at pace. What are some other problems you're encountering? Other problems that we're encountering? Yeah, so materials, I would say that's, uh, when our customers face issues, that's around 80%, 70-80% of the issues they face is getting the materials right. Uh, then there is the workforce development. How do we ensure that uh, these these young people that go into construction, they know how to operate and work with the machine. I would say a third thing that's that's um, a challenge and we, needs to be addressed is um, the the codes and standards. Generally, when new technology gets introduced, um, the regulation lags a few years behind, right? So they don't necessarily understand it yet, and thus we've seen with our uh, customers, and this this is not just in in the U.S. Uh, this is uh, across all all the countries we've sold to, uh, is that there might be some pushback um, from say structural engineers uh, or fr- from the local municipality uh, in getting these buildings approved because the technology is very new. And admittedly, when you look at it, it it, it looks kind of crazy, right? You have a machine uh, do all the work, right? And and how how do people even ensure that that this is safe and sound, um, but uh, I want to say that it's it's definitely moving uh, forward, especially in the U.S. I know that the um, American Concrete Institute (ACI) uh, and ASTM they've been working hard on on uh, pushing for for getting these standards uh, out there. Also, the NIST. So there's a lot happening, and in addition, our customers uh, when they do these projects, more and more of their buildings are getting approved faster and faster. Uh, as example, uh, recently in California, one of our customers there, they 3D printed their house number eight. And if you know anything about uh, construction in the U.S., is that California, they have very strict codes um, because of the, the seismic activity there. Um, so it's getting easier and easier for them now that municipalities and the media, they bring up these stories of how this technology is working. 
Uh, and then I think the coats will, will come after shortly. Remind, I don't know if you've ever heard the Frank Gehry story when he went to go design a factory and he was using these umbrella column type things. The inspector said that won't hold, that will never work. So they had to build one to demonstrate to the inspectors just how much weight it could hold. And it held something like, you know, 40 X what it was expect for. And they're like, wow, can we build the damn thing? So I feel like you guys have to do something (laughs) like that almost every time. I'm also pretty sure that (laughs) in between Frank Gehry's little origami thing of a cool structure, there was like 40 Arab guys making that thing actually work. (laughs) Well, yes. (laughs) Amazing. But but I feel like this is a, a common thread with this kind of with with any kind of tech and construction that you have to overcome the regulatory hurdles so to speak and convince people that this new way of doing things is just as good if not better yeah. um, and and on that note um max the 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 other day and, and that was fascinating to to see um so Fannie Mae and um uh I'm a European but but what I understand about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac is that they uh, they facilitate uh, mortgages. They they package them and sell them to investors. And now they're ma- they're facilitating around fifty plus percent of all mortgages in the U.S. So we're talking trillions of dollars. Now Fannie Mae the other day um, they actually went out and announced that they had looked into three D printing, and they now consider three D printed homes uh, to be on par with. Uh, regularly constructed homes. So that would be stick frame buildings, which is 90% of all single family homes in the US, I believe, um, and also masonry buildings. Uh, and they also, uh, in that announcement, recommended uh, to lenders that thus the terms should be the same for a 3D printed home as any other type of home. Nice. That's just, that's fantastic news for the ah. industry. That's such a, a great, uh, you know, stamp that they have approved this, this, of this technology after uh, investigating it. I mean, that's a big hurdle removed. If, 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 because I didn't even think about the fact that a, a credit agency or a loan could be impacted by, by this, but it makes sense. But you're right that now they're saying it's, it's better, it's fine. We'll ensure it the same or we'll, excuse me, we'll give you the same size loan for it. Um, that's, exactly. that's huge. That's very helpful to, to move the whole possibility forward. But then again, as a European, I'm terrified of American homes. Like if I have a suitcase in an American home and I'm swinging around putting, trying to put it on a, a table or something, I'm always like really careful because I might just really put it through the wall. <laughs> 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 it's, like the, it's, it's really the, 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 the construction method in the sites really scare the hell out of me, but that's just, that's just me. Yeah, but, I was, um, <laughs> after moving to Miami uh, almost a year and a half ago, I, I, I was surprised, I mean, to see, and I've been in, a lot in the U.S., but like the the I mean, most U.S. homes, they're a stick frame build. They're built to last maybe a generation, generation and a half. Um, and then you knock it down and build something new. Uh, and that's so different from Europe, where you generally build things uh, to, to last, right? So the apartment that, that I sold when, 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 uh, where I've lived the past 10 years in Copenhagen, uh, I mean, that building is almost older than the country I'm in right now. Which is kind of crazy, right? And and that's what we're hoping, you know, with three D printing that can help because concrete buildings uh, typically uh, have a longer lifespan than than buildings made with with other materials. Yeah, that's going to be very interesting. And then, and then, so if you're, uh, well, let's talk a little bit about the technology. I think because before we forget, I mean, there's a couple of different ways of doing this. So generally, there's like a we build it in a plant somewhere and we ship stuff, right? 
And then we also, we do what you guys do. We do it on site. Right. And then mm-hmm. there's, 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 we use a gantry based system, which you guys have, or we could go do a robot arms or help us differentiate a little bit between those, those two major choices, like gantry robot arm, uh, or on-site or off-site, let's say. Sure. So if we start off with, uh, let's start off with number two there, um, which is the the um, gantry versus uh, robotic arm. Um, to those uh, listeners that, that haven't seen this technology in action, a, a gantry-style setup is, is a 3D printer that typically has uh, four uh, towers. Um, and these four towers uh, or columns, they, they hold up, uh, the other axis of the printer. And then in the middle, you have a uh, print head that extrudes the concrete layer by layer uh, from a digital file to create something physical. So it's a very large scale structure. Some of our uh, machines out there, I mean, the one that we've developed for General Electric, uh, that one can print up to 80 feet in the height. So it's it's a massive and, you know, it can go as long and it could be uh, be uh, up to 80 feet in the width, too. So it's it's a massive uh, structure that you're 3D printing with. They don't have to be as big. Uh, most of our printers are smaller than that, but they're printing uh, these wind turbine towers. Now, the alternative is uh, the robotic arm type of system. So um, say from uh, KUKA, this was a big manufacturer of robotic arms. So. They're situated in, in, there's just one arm uh, sticking out that you install um, in, uh, in the ground. And then that arm has a span of maybe, say, uh, 10 feet. So it can pivot from that center point around 10 feet around its, its base. Um, but that's as far as it, it can reach out. And uh, there are pros and cons to each system. So the robotic arms, they're great for, I would say, smaller uh, types of, of 3D printed structures. Say you want to do a, a, a beautiful column or you want to 3D print a vase or smaller scale um, 3D printed um, uh, uh, items. The issue with robotic arms is that if you want to do a larger scale, then you got to move the, the, the arm itself. And every time you move the printer, uh, one, you spend time on moving it. And secondly, there is the risk of miscalibration. That's when you might want to turn to a gantry style setup, such as the one that that we supply, where it's much, much larger, which means you get much bigger. uh, You can do much bigger projects, say uh, some of our customers 3D print buildings up to three floors. Right. So 4000 plus square feet. it's, it has more precision because it's more rigid um, and, and, and large in that sense. And it, it really just enables you to do a lot more. Uh, the downside, of course, is that the upfront equipment investment uh, is larger than for the robotic arm. Okay, okay that's good. And then the, the difference between either we have one central site, which I guess is like it's dry, right? And we don't have a lot of problem with the weather. Or we print the thing on the site. And we have some more weather influences, but it's made locally. That's right. What are the differences there that really matter? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, here we're talking about yeah, on-site 3D printing or off-site 3D printing. And our machines are used to do both. And then the same you could say for robotic arms, they can also be used indoors. They can be used on-site. For the most part, our customers, they do 3D print on-site. And um, the reason is that you, you get some inherent benefits um, because now you don't have to design what you are printing and conform that to a flatbed truck. Because if you're doing something uh, off-site, then you have to 3D print it in modules 
and then stick it together once it gets on site. Um, and you also risk that uh, the, the items that you've printed off-site would probably or could get damaged during transportation. Um, so for the most part, our customers print on-site. You, uh, you could do it faster. You reduce the risk of, of transportation damages, and uh, you don't have to spend time uh, putting it all together. Uh, but you could definitely do say, both. I assume you need less labor as well. Um, on site. Yeah, you need, well, you need less We're labor. Different labor. In a sense, you, you don't need a, a truck driver, for instance. Well, you need a truck driver to get the printer there. But once it's there, once it's install, installed, you, you don't need that truck driver to go back and forth from the offside location and to the, the, the side where you intend to, to have your printed structure installed. Okay. And, 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 and do you think that, that, you know, it looks like, you think one design is going to predominate or one firm is going to predominate? Or you really think this is going to be a gigantic industry? There's going to be, you know, we're going to have hundreds of competitors. Hopefully we were the biggest and the best, but you know, it's going to be that huge. What's your vision on the future of that thing? I mean, if I didn't believe in, in what we do, I would be uh, back at McKinsey doing PowerPoint presentations. So I, I think, I think the future is very bright for this industry. I mean, we remember that, this uh, this whole sector is it's, it's very very new right we sold the first printer four years ago uh now we've sold uh 70 plus machines on uh, six consonants and uh, the use cases we've seen are just exploding and in addition to that our customers are actually getting a lot of value from it uh one third of all printers we've sold have gone to existing customers which is quite exciting for such a new uh, business as, as our own here. Um, in California, they recently 3D printed their, uh, their, their uh, latest home in, in six work days. I mean, that, that's very hard to do with conventional methods. And we're just getting started. Imagine once they start doing their home number 20, 50, 100. It's, it's not even fair to compare it uh, to conventional construction right now, but it's already improving upon it. Uh, and uh, on cost, one of our customers in Virginia said that uh, on their first or second home, they saved 15, uh, one five, uh, 15% versus conventional methods uh, by 3D printing it. So imagine where we will be in just five or 10 years from now. I, I think the potential is, is massive. And no, I don't think there, that there's just room for, uh, for one uh, 3D printer OEM. I think there will be, I think it'll be multiple companies and, and the construction sector is so big, right? It's a $12 trillion industry. So if, if you can just grasp like less than a 10th of, of 1% of that, the, the, the potential is still massive. Um, and we haven't even scratched the surface yet. So there will be multiple 3D printer um, uh, manufacturers such, such as Cobot. And there will also be these other types of companies um, that we don't see them as competitors because they're a bit different, but like more, the more, let's say, end-to-end -end integrated companies. So uh, there's a company in, in Texas, for instance, called Icon. Uh, they develop their own machines, uh, but on the at the same time, they're also out there in the field uh, doing the construction themselves. Uh, now, we, we don't want to do that. We only want to be the world's best uh, equipment manufacturer, and then we partner with all other great companies in doing so. But I think there'll be numerous 3D printing companies out there and they will all be doing different things, whether it's developing, it's, it's manufacturing the machines, it's, it's uh, printing with them, uh, or if it's a robotic arm versus a gantry, uh, the, the potential is huge. 
Mm-hmm. One thing I think kind of gets overlooked, I think, um, okay, houses in the third world, there's a lot of people making a lot of noise about that, that somehow that's better. But then at the same time, I think infrastructure in the developing world in austere environments are places where the roads don't work well and where, um, you know, they're, they're, there's very, it's very difficult. Like in, in a place like Europe or the States, you can order stuff from one part of the country to the other really easily. But in lots of countries, even fast growing ones or very massively populous ones, you know, that infrastructure is often very degraded. And there, I think the case of making like a culvert or uh, some kind of bridge unit or a big water tank or uh, a catchment of some kind of rain, rainwater catchment kind of thing. Um, these kind of things to me are very, very exciting because like just the idea of either trying to get farm work there or just trying to get all the infrastructure needed to make that stuff there is also really complicated. For sure. Uh, for sure. And and that's why we've been so excited to see our customers uh, utilize this technology in, in emerging markets. Um, so recently, one of our customers, for instance, in, in Kenya, Africa, 3D printed 10 homes in 10 weeks. Construction isn't easy in many parts of, of Africa. So, so that's a massive feat uh, that they accomplished that. Uh, it's been used to 3D print schools in, in Madagascar, in, in, uh, in, in Malawi, two single family homes, two, uh, uh, two family homes. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more of this. Uh, and, and especially, as you said, in areas where it's difficult, where infrastructure might not be um, uh, up to par when you can install the printer on site and have that work there and do its thing uh, without the need for, say, form work and getting things transported back and forth, that's that's a, a huge potential as well. And then also we have to talk a little bit about like cement, concrete, whatever everyone calls it, everybody uses the terms interchangeably. But of course, the making of that product is, 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 is hugely energy intensive and it's hugely polluting as well, right? Yes. Um if you had asked me three years ago, I, I knew very little about concrete, but, but if we just take it from the top. So concrete is the world's most used building material. Uh, it's used more than all other building materials combined times two. Uh, it's used everywhere from the buildings we live in, the, 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 the uh, offices that we work in, uh, roads that we drive on, uh, pavements. It's, it's used anywhere you can think of there's concrete involved. Now, Concrete consists of um, four main parts. It's cement, that's the gray powder. It's uh, sand, it's aggregates, so, so larger uh, sand, uh, if, if you will, and uh, it's, it's uh, water. When you mix that together, which the Romans discovered around uh, 2,500 years ago, uh, you get this beautiful material con- con- called concrete. Now, the reason why concrete is uh, the world's most used uh, uh, material uh, for construction is because it has a lot of inherent benefits. It's, it's very cheap. It's, uh, it's very strong. Uh, it will not uh, rot. Uh, it will last. It has a durability. It will last uh, hundreds of years. If you go to Rome, you'll find buildings that were done 2,000 years ago in concrete still standing. Um, and it's very accessible. Um, so you can mix concrete uh, most places in the world. There will be a cement manufacturer. There will be a quarry that does aggregates and sand, uh, and, and you can get the water too. And that's why it's been, been used so much. But um, to, to sort of address the elephant uh, in the room, it is uh, also, um, because it's used so much, it's a, a large emitter of greenhouse gases. So in general, uh, the construction industry makes up around 40% uh, 
of uh, worldwide greenhouse gases. That's the, the industry as a whole. And cement, which we learned before is part of concrete, makes up around 8% of that, right? So 8% of the world's CO2 emissions uh, come from cement. And that's because of the, the way that uh, in order to take limestone and turn it into cement, you got to heat it up. You got you got to heat it up to very high degrees, which is very energy intensive. Um, so the question then arises: Well, what can we do to address this? Uh, and uh, that's what we're working on with our investors, uh, Holcim, and which is the world's largest cement manufacturer, and Semex, which is in the top five, um, to see how we can 3D print in in greener ways. And I'm happy to talk about that too. Well, so I am curious about that. How do you hope to do that? I'm curious about that. Sure. Um, I'm glad you asked. So <laughs> there are different ways uh, that 3D printing actually um, help helps in that regard. Number one is that you can reduce the amount of construction waste uh, on a regular construction site. Um, in general, uh, construction waste on a construction site actually goes up to around 30%. So 30% of materials used on a construction site uh, in many regions of the world, it's just something you throw out. It maybe it goes to a landfill um, in many cases. So, but by only 3D printing what you need, then you you have the potential to reduce that significantly because now you have a digital file. It takes into account the window openings, door openings, uh, the the sockets for electricity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you only 3D print what you need, uh, which can help reduce the amount of material used. Hence the um, greenhouse gas uh, footprint. So that's one. Um, a second one is that you can uh, uh, 3D print with greener materials. And that's why we're a big proponent of mixing concrete locally because you can design the mix according to your wishes and goals. As an example, um, one uh, of, of our customers in, in Denmark um, is, uh, is going to 3D print next year a project uh, for which, uh, together with them, we have developed a 3D printable concrete mix with less than 50% um, CO2 compared to conventional concrete. And we've done this by using a different type of cement, uh, which is greener in, in how it's produced, and also mixing in fly ash. Um, so you can definitely print with greener materials as well, which is very exciting. And then a third one would be, as we discussed before, how can you design smarter? Um, so not only uh, by, by only printing what you need, you reduce the amount of material use, but how can you also design things in a way, and that's called topology optimization, when you de design things that are as strong and it has the same use case, but using less materials. So we've, for instance, looked into how we could 3D print uh, warehouses using um, using this technology. and and our structural engineers from a, from a third party, right? It's not just our own, uh, you know, numbers. Uh, they actually went through it and said that we could, for warehouses, by 3D printing them, we could reduce the amount of concrete use by at least a third. And the same also for reinforcement. And reinforcement, which is rebar, so that's steel, is is much much higher in its CO2 uh, footprint than than concrete is. So if we can. If we can actually convert some of that reinforced uh, reinforcement into concrete instead, there's also huge gains to be had. Um, so yeah, those are just three ways that we're addressing it, and, and there are much more out there. And and you know, the next year it's it's something that's very very important to us and and how to make construction greener as well.
Okay. Well, Philip, I think you guys are on a really, really exciting time, really exciting part of our industry. And I think, uh, uh, yeah, you could uh, really, really change some things. So, uh, yeah, congratulations on that. And, and thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thanks a lot, guys, for, for having me. I appreciate it. And Max, thank you for being here as well. Always. Thank you, George. And thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.